You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, You, who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to front load this sermon with theology and then start working through it practically. So here's where I want to begin. The gospel is the good news of healed relationships. Now, when God created the world and all that is in it, he steps back and he says over and over again, it is... It's good. That's what I'm talking about. It's good, it's good, it's good. But it's interesting, as God steps back from his creation, there's one pronouncement where he says, it's not good. And it's man by himself. And so he creates community, and he puts his blessing upon his people. But as we know later on in the creation account in Genesis 3, when sin entered into the human experience, it brought with it disconnect. In fact, it's interesting that one of the Old Testament words for sin, iniquity, means to be disconnected. It means to be twisted out of place like a bone that is disjointed. And we know from our own experience, just think about our lives and the world around us, sin seems to break things apart. Sin is always messing things up. 
We got a good thing going, and then sin comes and just distorts it and twists it. We see this in our lives. We see this in our relationships. We see this in the world. A world filled with retaliation and racism and violence and broken relationships and divided groups. It's evident. It's sin. But the good news is that Jesus came into the world to heal our divisions through his life and his death and his resurrection. In fact, the prophet Isaiah describes the work of Jesus like this, but he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And so through faith in Jesus Christ, God is bringing healing into our lives, and he begins by reconciling us to himself. Jesus came to die to bring us to God. And as we're being reconciled to God and we're united in Christ, another thing is happening. We are being reconciled to each other. And it's interesting because Isaiah doesn't simply say, by his wounds I am healed. No, it's by his wounds we are healed. Through the wounds of Jesus Christ, we as a people are being relationally healed. Now, the reason that I share all this is that the place where the fruit of the Holy Spirit grows and is experienced is within relationships. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's all God's relational healing at work through us. None of it makes sense apart from like real life people. I'm not impressed by your ability to be kind if it's in isolation. All of us are kind until people come into the equation. Don't be impressed by gentleness or patience. What do those things require? They require people. And to be, to be honest, they require disappointing and frustrating people. That's what patience is all about. That's what kindness is all, all about. That's what goodness is all about. And so what that means for us is that the spirit-filled life is not an individual, personal, mystical experience. The, the spirit-filled life is quite simply a life, a life marked by healed relationships, healthy relationships. That's a spirit-filled life. That, that's the charisma of God at work. And that's why it's helpful for us to really look at the broader portion, uh, this broader portion of Galatians 5 and 6 today, where we really begin to see that the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which we've been focusing on just a couple verses over the last, I don't know, like month or two, it fits in. It's nestled into a bigger conversation about what it means to be a part of a community, of, of real-life people, just like ours. It's interesting, as I'm reading through this, I'm like, this is kind of like our church. It's a church where there's sin, and there's burdens, and there's pride, and there's people comparing each other to the, uh, themselves to, uh, to others. There's leaders, there's needs, and there's the temptation to give up. Sounds like a normal church. Sounds like reality. Richard Plass and James Caulfield said this. Scripture reminds us that it's in the midst of broken, sinful, frustrating people that God's spirit is at work creating a transformed community. In fact, it is in and by the messiness that God does the supernatural work of drawing us into the likeness of his son. This is where it's happening. Grace shows up 
where there is brokenness and sin. The Spirit is most active when there is great work to do. And so within this transformed community that we see here in Galatians 5 and 6, one fruit of the Holy Spirit that seems to keep popping up, seems to be a prominent theme in this portion of scriptures, is the, the, the fruit of goodness. The fruit of goodness. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary in doing what? Good. That was good. That wasn't even up there for you. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Verse 10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do? Kids? Good. Let me hear all the kids. Good. To everyone, especially, especially to those who are in the household of faith, the community of believers. Now, here's the challenge. The challenge of us understanding goodness is that the way that we use the word goodness and the way that the Bible uses the word goodness is very, very different. We tend to look at goodness as like okayness. If something is good, it is okay. Hey, how was that new movie that you saw? Eh, it was good. It got the job done, like kept me awake. Or, hey, I missed service. I missed church last week. How was the sermon? Eh, it was pretty good. It was good. What that means is it was not the best, but it wasn't the worst. It was, it was, it was like, okay. No pep talk has ever come to that like, conclusion of like, all right, guys, I want you to go out there and be good. It's great. In fact, we're always trying to move from good to great on the scale of horrible and great. Good is just somewhere sort of in the middle, but it is somewhere to leave behind on our journey towards greatness. However, the Bible, the Bible uses the word very differently. Okay, so let's get all that out of our mind because that's not what the Bible's talking about, okayness. And to illustrate this, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 10, it says a man runs up to Jesus and he addresses him like this. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't even initially answer his question, but he responds to the title that he gives him. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Whoa, 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 whoa. Who are you calling good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, this is not a trivial term. This isn't just like okayness on the spectrum of greatness. Do you know what you're saying? You are putting me, Jesus, on par with God Almighty. So if this isn't a trivial term and it's not just general okayness, what is it? Well, J.I. Packer defined goodness like this. He said, goodness is the sum total of God's revealed excellencies. In other words, if you were to take all that God is and all that God does in eternity and boil it down and condense it into one word, what would that word be? It would be good. Good. And here is the profound news that I'm here to share with you today and that Galatians is spelling out over and over again. It is this, that now the work of the Holy Spirit is bringing about this healing goodness of God, all that he is and all that he does, he is bringing that about in our lives and in our community. He is taking what can feel abstract and theoretical, I don't know, God is good, and making it real in our midst and in our lives, in our church, in reality. 
So here's the question. What will goodness look like in a community? What does goodness actually look like? So let's get brass tacks here and get practical because that's what the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul says it at least looks like these three things. Goodness is mending brokenness, bearing burdens, and sharing benefits. Mending brokenness, bearing burdens, sharing benefits. Let's look first at mending brokenness. Look with me once again in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, if you have cancer, or you tear a ligament, or you break a bone, or you experience a major medical emergency. There was a guy here at first service that Friday night, he was reaching into his dishwasher and like cut his hand open and had to rush to the hospital and get eight stitches, something like that. So if you hurt yourself or if your body is, there's something going wrong, you pray, I hope, but you also go to a doctor. That's kind of like what we do, right? Oh, you guys are like anti-doctor here? Okay, so we, go to, we pray and then we go to a doctor because, why? God gave us doctors to help heal us. We understand that there's this interaction between human hands and divine healing. And we really understand that when we're the person that cut our hand open and needs stitches. But here's a question we need to consider. Where does someone go if they're broken by sin? What if, where, where does someone go that, who, is, who is broken in their soul and caught up? in a destructive pattern of sin that they just can't get themselves out of. Well, for the most part, Christians understand that it's God that brings spiritual and emotional healing into people's lives. But I don't think that we understand how he does it. We get that he's our healer, but we don't understand the means by which God's heal, God heals us and who he uses in that equation. So let's, let's kind of tease this illustration out just a little bit more. Whenever someone has a major medical condition, we will typically pray for healing. And here's how we pray, and this is how I've prayed for many people in the church. We pray that God would give wisdom to doctors, that he would guide the hands of doctors and nurses, and that he would be involved in the process, and that the rehabilitation process would go smooth. We, for the most part, get that God involves people in his work in hospitals. But then we do this weird thing. We then neglect that people are involved in God's healing work in churches. When it comes to issues of sin, brokenness, and the need to be restored, we like, we tap out. Mm. And we'll typically cloak it in really spiritual talk. We'll say things like, only God can change the human heart. Only God can change their heart. I've heard that numerous times. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to pray and just hope that the Spirit speaks to them. He brings his conviction to their lives. Or I've heard things like this. I have sin in my life. You don't, you, know, you don't know my history. I've sinned. Who am I to get involved? Why would I get involved in this person's life? But this is silly. And this is as silly as a surgeon saying this. I had cancer once. You know, I've battled cancer. I've had major medical conditions. Who am I to operate on someone with cancer? Who am I to, to help mend this broken bone? It feels kind of hypocritical. Why would I get involved? See how silly that sounds? 
In fact, it makes that individual, that man or woman, probably more qualified to engage in that healing process because they understand the gentleness that's involved. They understand the need for care. They have been there. They've been on the other side of the bad news. They've been on the other side of the scalpel, and they understand how vital and important it is for people to truly care about their lives. The work of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is ultimately who heals us. Don't get me wrong. God is our healer. But healing doesn't just appear out of thin air. As it's been said before, we as God's people are instruments in God's redeeming hands. God brings the healing, but he, the means is through his people. And specifically, Paul says, those who are spiritual. Now, I know that when you heard that term, like half of you checked out because you said that's not me. I don't really consider myself a spiritual person. So let's clarify here. Paul is not saying for those who are sinless, that's, all of us would be out of that equation. He's not saying those who are seminary trained. He says those who are spiritual. If you have, if you have the NIV translation, it reads quite simply, for those who have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay, so what are our qualifications to be able to be involved in the healing process of someone's life being mended, that brokenness being mended? Here it is. Do you have the Holy Spirit? If you're a Christian, the answer is yes. All right, you're set. You're in. You're qualified. It's go time. Scrub up. Time to go. Now, our approach is really important. Is it scrub in or scrub up? Scrub in, yeah. I'm a doctor, by the way, if you didn't know that. Okay, um, you guys are just as cold and uh, not getting my humor as the nine o'clock service. I heard you laughing there from the, the live stream. Thanks, guys. Now, our approach is really important. Paul doesn't only show us our need to get involved in mending brokenness in people's life, but he also makes sure that we've got the right heart going into it. He's not just saying what we need to do. He's now getting to the heart of how we approach getting involved in someone's life. And he says in verse one, keep watch on yourself, okay? So the primary issue isn't just what's happening out there in the life of another person. Jesus, God is saying through the scriptures, no, no, what also matters is what's going on in here. And what the scriptures here are gonna spare us from are the polar extremes. There are some extremes that we can kind of fall into, some pitfalls that we can fall into when we're getting involved in other people's life and lives. And so our approach should be neither critical and conceited, we want to avoid that, but it also should, should not be non-confrontational. In other words, if you like confronting people, if you like enjoy confronting people that are caught in sin and it gives you this like sixth sense that you're better than them and you like get to stroke that savior complex ego within, like we're, you're doing it wrong. That's pretty obvious, right? But also, if you're unwilling to confront sin, then you're getting it wrong too. Non-confrontational Christianity is not a thing. Jesus confronts. We confront. And so here's the bumpers for this conversation. We shouldn't enjoy it. That's weird. <laughs> but we also shouldn't avoid it. Remember, sin is like a bone twisted out of shape. 
or twisted out of socket or, or broken in a way that affects the entire body. Now, I don't know, like five, six years ago, I had a fracture in my foot. It's like the tiniest little fracture. It's called a Jones fracture. It was like almost microscopic. That thing messed me up. Man, months and months of trying to like heal this thing. It almost debilitated me, this tiny little fracture. And the illustration for us is this, that when one part of the body is broken, everyone suffers. So it's not a like them and us issue. It's not like, oh, that's their issue over here. No, it's the body's issue. Everyone is affected. And the word here for restore means to mend or repair, to put it back in place. It doesn't mean to like necessarily like make perfect or make sinless. It means to just like fit it back in the right place. And yes, this is painful, but again, this is necessary for the overall health of the body. Now, when I was four years old, I broke my humerus. And there are only like two parts of this day that I vividly remember. The incident, which I was in a friend's backyard, I was on this old rickety aluminum jungle gym. And in the middle of summer, these things got really hot. And so I'm going across the bars, my hands are hot, they're sweaty, I slip from, I don't know, fall from six feet or whatever off the ground, and then I land right on my arm and just break it right in the middle of my humerus bone, which wasn't very funny, by the way. But I'm The second memory I, uh, I have about this day is the resetting of the bone. Anyone had a bone reset before? This is a horrible, god-awful process. And one of the very few times that I've ever seen my dad, my old man cry, was sitting across the table that day as the doctor is just twisting my arm into these just horrible directions to try to get the bone sort of back together. Now, I remember in that moment looking across the table thinking, to, uh, thinking of my dad like, why are you not doing anything about this as a four-year-old, right? I don't understand the whole process. All I understand is today's been a really bad day, and this is like making it worse. I've just experienced like some excruciating pain, and you're kind of like involved in more pain. What's up with that? Now, today, with an almost straight left arm, and some kids that have like broken and fractured things from time to time, I understand that he loved me enough to sit with me in the pain of restoration and to be involved. He didn't enjoy it, that'd be sick. But he didn't avoid it because he understood that negligence is probably one of the harshest forms of abuse, right? He didn't enjoy it, he didn't avoid it. And really, this is the point I'm making here. The fruit of goodness gets involved. It gets involved. Who am I to get involved? You have the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. That's what goodness does. It moves towards brokenness to get involved. And so how do we do this? Well, there's numbers of ways that we can get involved in people's life. It's through accountability. It's, it's reaching out to someone and saying, how are, how's your life? How's your practical life? How are your relationships? How's your soul? How's your heart? How's your devotion to Christ? Where are some areas that you feel like you're falling into this pitfall? Uh, Where's the sin that seems to be overcoming you right now? How can I hold you accountable? How can I pray for you? This also means graciously calling out sin. 
Being grace-filled, the grace-filled church doesn't mean that we diminish our view of sin. It means we have a high view of sin and an even higher view of our Savior. And it, we understand in light of what it costs Jesus to redeem us, how devastating sin is in our lives and in a community. And so we call it out graciously, kindly, and yet we confront. And then we also, I know this sounds super trippy and super weird and maybe even archaic for people, but we practice church discipline. Because guess what? The Bible says to do that. If a brother sins against you, go to them in secret. Attempt to restore that relationship. If not successful, go with another witness or two witnesses. Hopefully they will turn around and repent of their sin at that point. And if not, then involve the church. Why? Because Christ's honor and reputation is on the line. And the health of the body. What does goodness look like? It's not this like abstract, theoretical idea it looks like mending brokenness in real-life relationships like you find in reality. You guys still with me? All right, secondly, I know I lost you at church discipline. You're like, oh, weird. Okay, secondly, bearing burdens. Look with me in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, there's an ancient myth of a figure named Sisyphus. Sisyphus figure out a way to cheat death not only once, but twice. But as a consequence of cheating death, Zeus ended up condemning him to forever rolling this boulder up a hill, pushing and straining every single day to like muscle this boulder up to the hill. And just the most tragic part of the story is just as the boulder's about to reach the crest of the mountain, every single time, the weight overcomes him and it rolls back down to the bottom of the hill, forcing him to start the process all over again, forever and ever and ever. Now, that myth has nothing to do with Christianity. But I think for many of us, we treat the Christian faith like Sisyphus and his boulder. And for many of us, God is sort of like Zeus. He's this temperamental, sort of aloof, when he gets involved, he's mad, sort of figure out there, making our existence really difficult because we too cheated death, and yeah, one day we get to go to heaven and I guess like kind of like cheat death, but it comes at a cost of waking up every single day to hell on earth, being doomed to shoulder these heavy burdens alone. Now, if that sounds extreme, I, I, I actually talk to a lot of people that may not put it in that specific language, but are just living into that sort of picture of the Christian faith. I'm here to give you good news today. That is not what God has called you into. Listen to how Jesus describes himself and describes the life, listen, that he desires for every single one of you. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light that's what Jesus is calling every single one of us into and the reason the way that Jesus is able to make such a profound statement like that is that through the cross, he bore the heavy burden of our sin in his body. And it wasn't 
the weight of the wood crossbeam, and it wasn't the weight of Roman soldiers whipping him, and it wasn't even the weight of death itself that was the burden. The burden was the weight of the punishment for our sins that were reserved for us, that should have crushed us. But he carried it in his body. And now, if he did it that then, how strange would it be for him to say, okay, now be crushed by life. Now be crushed by Christianity. Now be crushed by following me. No. Now the resurrected Jesus continues to bear our burdens for us and in his body again. But now, as the Bible describes, the body is the spirit-filled church. We are his hands and feet, we're told in the Bible. And so that means that we are the way that Jesus helps people and shoulders the, the weight of our worries and our fears and our anxieties and our sorrows and our needs and our pains and our loneliness and our relational strife. It's through one another. I want you to think about this. We, as God's people, are God's answer to someone else's prayer. God, help me right now. How is he answering that prayer? Again, it's, it's not help that just appears out of thin air. It's help that comes through the community. How often we've been willing to pray for people and then just send them on their merry way. God, help them. I pray that you bless them. I help you bring help to them. I pray you bring people into the lives. All right, have a good week. Maybe you are the answer. This is what it means to be an incarnational ministry. It means that we manifest and minister God's eternal healing goodness to others in a really practical, down-to-earth, maybe even sometimes overlookable way in human relationships. If your Christianity is abstract and theoretical, it's not Christianity. This is where the rubber meets the road. Last week, I was listening to an interview from a doctor at a, a large hospital in Detroit. It's like a training hospital, Henry Ford. And it became sort of this hub for treating COVID-19 in this season for the Midwest area. And this doctor, who's not only a doctor herself, but is involved in like training other doctors, was talking about how over the last few months, her job description in the hospital has really changed. And she found herself going up and down multiple floors at the hospital, checking in on the staff, checking in on doctors, talking to nurses, meeting up with unit clerks. And what she found was that under the current circumstances there, where there was just an increased number of people dying on a daily basis, she realized that the staff was checking in on people, but no one was checking in on the staff. Right? So the staff is bearing the burdens of the hospital, but no one was bearing their burdens. And so what she began to do is just sit with the doctors and nurses. She, she said, like, as they were in the break room, I would corner them in the room and not let them leave and just ask them questions and hear them and hear their stories and, 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 and just ask about their life and about their emotions. And she even says, I was, I was praying with them and I was meeting practical needs like delivering disinfectant wipes. Talk about overqualified. And she was, she was absolutely overqualified. And any other time, like this would have totally broken protocol and would not have been uh, you know, a good use of her time. And yet, for the health of those who were healing, she entered in 
to bear the burden. And as I was listening to the story, I'm like, this is what God has called us to do in a season like this. Such a unique time. I haven't talked to a single person who is not carrying a significant burden right now. I have not talked to a single person that is just enjoying this light, burden-free existence, whether it's the burden of relationships or the burden of the spiritual needs or emotional needs. And yet what we need to remember is that we have God's people, you, every eye up here, you, are uniquely called and empowered to help bear those burdens. And this is how we reconcile verse two and verse five, where it says, every, you know, bear each other's burdens and then everyone must carry their own load. This is how we reconcile this. As we simultaneously bear each other's burdens, we are bearing the responsibility of stepping into manifesting the life of Jesus Christ in our midst. This is what it means to carry our cross. It means to bear one another's burdens. What does goodness look like? Finally, it looks like sharing benefits. Sharing benefits. Now, uh, I picked up Michelle from the airport a couple weeks ago. She went and traveled and visited some family out of town. And we're driving home, and we're getting caught up on life, and, you know, sharing how we missed each other and things we missed and that sort of thing. And she said, quite simply, I don't even know if she'll remember this, she said, man, God has been good to us. There was just this moment where she paused and she said, God has been good to us. And it really resonated with me. Now, to put it into context, she had just flown Allegiant Air, which means that your like travel carry bag is like this big. And we're driving home in our like 11-year-old car that shakes when you get it over 65 miles per hour on the freeway. So I'm not talking about like bawling out God has been good to us. <laughs> okay, a little bit of context here. But it was just so profound. God has been good to us, and it struck me. He has. Now, we've had significant losses. We've experienced some, some really challenging losses, but he has always been good to us. And because I'm so pragmatic, and I, I start thinking to myself, why? Why has God been so good to us? And I know this. It's not because we've earned it. God, help us. It's not because we deserve it. In fact, what I've noticed is that his goodness has often been in spite of our mistakes and our sort of just unconventional, crazy decision-making. But it's because he's gracious and he's kind. That's what God is. But I also believe that he's been good to us for a purpose. God is gracious, but I don't think it's a haphazard grace. I think it's a purposeful grace. And his purpose, I believe, has been to channel his goodness through us. One of the commitments that we made early on uh, when we got married and, and started the family was to seek to faithfully steward God's goodness through generosity. Generosity to the church and generosity just in general to people. And here's why. Because we believe that God doesn't just bless us to bless us. We don't see that in Scripture. God just blesses us to bless us. But like he says profoundly to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless you in order to be a blessing to the nations. We are blessed in order to bless others. So think about this. Your paycheck, your social security, your allowance, kids, your retirement, your inheritance, your unemployment, your second stimulus check. Can I get an amen? Come, Lord, quickly. Whatever the case may be, 
We receive God's benefits in order to share God's benefits. Full stop. Look at me, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this, the focus here is the relationship between church members and church leaders, those who teach and those who are taught. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point specifically because this could turn into a huge conflict of interest. I'm up here instructing you on how to give me money. Now, Tyler, if you want to come up here and instruct the church on how to give me money, then the, the floor is yours right now. Just kidding. You guys are just as bad as the 9 o'clock service. I heard some laughing through the live stream. Okay. Now, what I am confident to say is this. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In other words, it is the responsibility of the church to support its leaders, and particularly those who are laboring and preaching and teaching. And we do that as a reality whole, uh, not by off taking up an offering every week for me or any other kind of leader, but by allocating a specific portion of our budget that has oversight and accountability in order to help pay staff ministers. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm not saying this because there's a need. You guys have been really faithful. Thank you. God bless you. God has been really generous through this church. This is the specific idea here. I sort of like didn't want to share that, but it's in the text, so I kind of had to. But what I want us to see more generally here is the kind of relationship that Paul's describing. The kind of relationship that we enter into together as a church, as we uh, really experience together. And it's not a one-way relationship, it's a mutual relationship. The word here for share in verse 6, but sharing all good things, comes from the, the, the Greek word that we see throughout the New Testament, koinonia. You ever heard that word, koinonia? It's kind of a famous word in the church. And it means to partner or to join yourself to something. It's not a loose association. It's not like, a, like a, an affiliation. It is a joining. It means to belong. And so when we are instructed to establish this financial partnership together, it isn't payment for goods and services. It's not like a customer, uh, customer service sort of consumeristic idea here. And I hear that often. Like, I give my money. I'll be generous to people I'll be generous to the church so long as I'm getting the things out of it that I want. But when things start going sideways or they don't, you know, they disappoint me or I, I'm not seeing the things that I want to see, then I withhold my money. Truth is, there'd be plenty of reasons. If that's the way it worked, like there'd be plenty of reasons to stop being generous. Like I've probably given you reason today. But that's not how it works. So let's just like, disconnect that from our relationship. That's cancerous. The idea of partnership is a commitment to share our lives together. Like a deep soul, we are in this together. And it means that we're going to share our time, we're going to share our talents, and we're going to even share our treasure with a particular congregation through thick and thin, especially those within the household of faith. When things are easy, and as verse nine alludes to, when we wanna give up. 
when someone or some group gives us a reason to disconnect, we stay engaged. We press in. And this is literally, Paul is saying, the way that we put our, mount, our money where our mouth is. Fully investing ourselves to the good of others. Why? It comes back to the gospel. Because God in Christ fully invested himself in our good, in our building up. So let me conclude with this. We step back from this passage, and what we need to notice is that this is not just a, a description of a church. What do we see here? We see healing. We see restoring. We see burden bearing. We see generosity. We see care. We see commitment. Gosh. Paul is not just describing a church. He's describing God and the kingdom of God, which the church, reality, and other churches like it are the outpost for. And so as we, through the Holy Spirit, become partakers in the divine nature of God, what, what, what happens is his goodness begins to shine through us. God's eternal goodness becomes manifest in our presence and through reality. God begins to draw people to himself. The point of bearing fruit is not so that men and women join reality. The point is so that through reality, men and women come to experience the never-ending perfect goodness of God that will never waver. It's not about reality. It's about men and women coming into a life-transforming experience of Jesus Christ through us. God, let it be. God, let it happen here. And it's these sort of relationships, healed relationships, marked by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, spirit-filled relationships, that, as John Calvin said, make the invisible kingdom visible in our midst. Listen to how Francis Schaeffer put it. When the world can turn around and see a group of God's people, a group just like us, exhibiting substantial healing in the area of human relationship in their present life, then the world will take notice. Think about that statement. Then the world will notice. The world will not be able to ignore it. So that's our, that's our takeaway from today. It's not just about bearing the fruit of goodness. It's about making the real Jesus non-ignorable in our time through the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing about the sum total of his divine excellencies in our midst, in our midst. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. For